1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elspeth Curry, your host, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Sylvia Sellers-Garcia about her new book, The Woman on the Windowsill, A Tale of Mystery in Several Parts. Sylvia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're so glad that you can be here, excited to talk to you about your work, um, but I was wondering if you could actually get us started with a little bit more about yourself. Sure. I will
0: give you the medium-sized version of my uh, background because some of it really does influence uh, what I'm doing in this book. I was actually trained as a uh, comp student in undergraduate, and my interest in literature has carried through into the present. Comparative literature, I think, teaches you to read texts in a particular way. And even after I became a historian, that that way of thinking and way of seeing texts has really stayed with me. I studied um, for two years in England, and I did an MPhil in Latin American studies. And that also really shaped my uh, approach to thinking about history. It was really what rerouted me into history. I started looking at modern Latin American history through that. MPhil. And for that MPhil, I was really more drawn to the ways in which the present day armed conflicts in Latin America have uh, shaped the world, shaped uh, geopolitics. I was first pulled into that by family history. My mother is Guatemalan, and I was trying to understand some of the bigger picture story that had influenced individuals in our family. And after spending several years with contemporary history, I wanted to understand how that had come about. And as you probably know, you start tracing things further and further back, and suddenly you find yourself hundreds of years in the past <laughs> studying early modern history. And so then for my graduate degree, I was uh, looking at colonial history, uh, colonial Latin America more broadly, and colonial Guatemala specifically. So now I think of myself as a historian of colonial Guatemala, but in a way that connects more broadly with the Spanish empire, and that also really connects with the present. So that's something that was important for me in this book, was trying to uh, really make, not uh, facile connections with the present, but to understand how the events of the past resonate uh, with the present always.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so that's a bit about you. And now I was wondering if you could introduce us to your book. Uh, it's called The Woman on the Window Sail, A Tale of Mystery in Several Parts. So uh, what is this mystery at the heart of your book? Um, and how does the case unfold?
0: Right. So I can only tell this, I think, by describing my own way of entering the mystery, um, which began when I was in the archive in Guatemala City, the Archivo General de Centroamérica. It is a huge archive that brings together documents from all of Central America and Southern Mexico. It is especially strong in colonial era documents, but it also has a great deal of documentation for the 19th century and, and 20th. And this archive is a little idiosyncratic in its organization. It was organized uh, several times over, but the modern-day card catalog was made in the early 20th century by someone who basically created a card catalog by hand, by reading documents and typing up descriptions of those documents, putting them on little note cards, and creating a, a massive, long set of bureaus with all of these little note cards in them. And the content organization is idiosyncratic, to say the least. So you'll request a bundle of documents and you sort of uh, don't know what you're going to find in it. It's both fun and exasperating, as these trips can be. So I was looking at criminal cases because uh, in connection with another project, I was really curious about the types of crimes that were being pursued and prosecuted in this time period. And I was flipping through the pages. I had been allowed to take documents, uh, photo. So I was taking some document photos of these pages. And then I saw a drawing in the margin of this case that I was flipping through. And it was in color. Now, drawings themselves are very unusual in criminal cases. You really don't see them very often, except for in some particular instances. And this was a drawing that, number one, was way more uh, sort of well drawn than I had ever seen. It was just a a good draftsmanship. And then it was also in color, which I have never encountered. Usually you see the scribes ink everywhere, maybe a stamp or seal at the top of the page, but you're never going to see something like an illustration, like a real, like a book illustration almost. So this really pulled my attention. And I also did not know what the picture was of. <laughs> that was made even more of a mystery. I, I was staring at it. and I was like, well, this kind of looks like an island. Is it, is it like a map? What is it I'm looking at? So I had to go back to the first page and start reading the case. And it, it was like a story right away from the first page. It starts with a man, Don Cayetano Diaz, who opens the shutters of his window, and he's describing this to a scribe in the court, and he finds an object on his windowsill, and he calls people over to the sill, someone in his house, and then a passerby, and they look at this object together, and they realize that it is a woman's severed breast. And I just stopped in the middle of reading. I couldn't believe it. I sort of like looked up and was like, is everyone looking at this thing that I'm looking at? Because this is amazing. Of course, no one else was, just me. Uh, Only I was lunatic enough to be drawn in by this uh, horrendous event. But as I kept reading, I I just found it more and more fascinating because they responded with this bizarre combination of -of matter-of-factness and Um, outrage. But it wasn't the kind of outrage that we would expect. I felt the horror of, oh my gosh, this poor woman, right? But they were outraged at the kind of vandalism that had occurred in the placement of these breasts. So I kept reading and I kept reading. It turned out, by the way, about that first mystery, that the reason the drawing was so articulate is because the man, Gaetano Diaz, was a mapmaker. And so that drawing was beautifully made by his hand. It just so happened to be his window that was chosen for this. And that's why we have an image of this uh, spectacular, gruesome piece of evidence. But as I read through the case, which is quite long, uh, there were sort of more shocking surprises to in store. More body parts were left on other windowsills. And there were lots of twists and turns that I wasn't expecting. So once I had read through the whole case, I realized that there were several mysteries, really. It's not just a mystery. The mystery of who this woman was, the mystery of why these body parts were being placed on windowsills, and the mystery of really what it all meant. You know, what, what was the purpose of this series of events? Um, so that was really at the core of it. And I wanted the reader to somehow experience a little bit of the the thing that I had experienced, which was first, whoa, and then a set of uh, like a domino effect of different realizations and new mysteries and wonderings and puzzlements. And one that would take the reader further and further into the historical work but also feel a little bit of the frustration of historical work, because sometimes historical work is many more questions than answers, right? And this is part of what I wanted to convey through the the process of continued puzzlement.
1: Wonderful, thank you. Uh, So you, you were stopped by this image uh, at the time, were you working on a different project? Like, did were, did you just find yourself all of a sudden turned off in a new direction, or how did you go from this discovery of uh, a remarkable document to realizing this is something that it's going to give structure to a book and uh, has enough to to make it the center center point of a uh, historical work?
0: Yes, I was working on something different. I had I had started out uh, working on criminal cases more broadly. Uh, My previous book had been on mail, mail carriers in part, really the workings of the mail system and documentation. Mail carriers were a big part of that. And I had found mail carriers involved in several criminal cases. So I was really reading these criminal cases to learn a little bit more about mail carriers. And then once that project ended, I realized that there was a lot more to learn from the criminal cases, even those that didn't involve mail carriers. So, I had sort of widened my focus and was thinking, what can I learn by looking at criminal cases from the late 18th century more broadly? So, that was sort of my starting point. And yes, I did read this case and realize this is sort of too interesting <laughs> to not focus on it exclusively. I'm not sure if I ever said to myself, this is now I know I have enough. I think I just felt that the story compelled me that it was such a fascinating case that I needed to give it attention. And I didn't know if it would become something small or something big or nothing, but I needed to to follow it where it led me. Um, So it grew when I realized that I didn't understand many of the things that were going on in the case, that I I needed to understand things about the practice of medicine. I needed to understand things about the workings of death and burial. I needed to understand more about gender and race, even though I feel like I'd had some foundation in that, but I needed way more than I had. So the accumulation of more bits of uh, background added up to something much larger than I had first imagined. And all of them were just sort of Pulled in by the gravitational force of this case that that demanded scrutiny, so I I put the the larger uh, inquiry into criminal cases aside in order to just
1: basically follow
0: my nose with this case and see where where it led me.
1: Wonderful. Um, so this mystery and it's it's all in 1800, correct? The summer of 1800. Um, so there are the breasts, and then there's severed hands. And uh, the discovery of some bodies that have been mutilated, uh, and is it ears or the last thing? I'm trying Years. to remember the last uh, body parts yeah. that are found. It goes,
0: it goes, breasts, hands, ears, and then a full body. Full body. Yeah.
1: Um, so I mean. I was reading this book and and uh, you kind of addressed this in your introduction that our immediate question is who did it, uh, but instead you really want your readers and want us to think about what did it mean. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us more about why, what did it mean, uh, Is why that's a more productive question to ask when we're faced with a case like this or um, others rather than just who did it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the short answer is I didn't have an answer to who did it. <laughs> so I, I couldn't satisfactorily offer that. Um, it's actually one of the amazing things about this case, uh, that they they don't catch the perpetrator. In some ways, I think it would be less satisfying if they did. Um, but for better or worse, we don't know who committed this crime or series of crimes. Uh, so it's also true that I think that there are more interesting questions to ask. And I think the best way to 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 think about why is to make comparisons to other types of crimes that we find more intelligible. So a couple comparisons that I mentioned in the book, I, I mentioned uh, one example would be, let's say if there was a um, uh, m- homicide related to uh, a drug heist. Well, we could find out who had done that, and we would have a name. But if we were looking at that from the outside, we wouldn't understand anything about the uh, the drug trade or the lives of people who are caught up in violence related to the drug. We wouldn't understand really much just by knowing that name. We would need to have a set of contexts in order to really comprehend what was going on and why that person was killed. And in the same way if we think about a kind of politically motivated uh, murder that might occur today or in the recent past, having the name of the perpetrator wouldn't explain the politics that led to that occurring. So what I really hope to uh, provoke in the reader is a greater curiosity about what gives this crime meaning, what could have been reflected in the crime. I believe that this is either a kind of crime of protest, an act of protest, or a kind of hate crime, maybe somewhere in the middle or even both. And those types of crimes really don't tell us very much if we just know the name of the person. We really want to understand the why, the the mechanism for that crime taking place. What are the things being protested? What are the hatreds that are being expressed? How do they fit in with the greater culture? So, my hope is that the reader will, yeah, be pulled along by what happened, but also ultimately be convinced that it's most interesting to understand what it all means in the larger picture. So th- that's my hope. I think it's also kind of what we do as historians, right, is to to think about context and how it helps us to understand specifics.
1: Thanks. Could you talk a little bit more about some of these contexts that you found uh, being really integral to understanding how someone in Guatemala City in 1800 may have responded to these events or or understood them?
0: Yeah. So I'll talk about maybe a couple of them. Um, The first one that I think was most surprising to me as one that I needed to comprehend was, was medicine. And the reason that was a surprise is that I, I hadn't. It may have to do a little bit with the involvement of one person in the in the events, but I, I hadn't really realized that the treatment of bodies would be so bound up with medical practices. That may sound uninformed. I'm sure. It, I'm sure it is, but one of the first people called to look at this evidence was a man named uh, Doctor Narciso Esparragosa. He was a leading figure of Enlightenment medicine, and. He was a little bit of a character, you know, actually kind of a (laughs) I don't know if he's likable. He's he's kind of unlikable to me, but maybe some people will find him likable in a sort of extravagant way. But he's certainly an odd duck. And he shows up on this on the uh, first page of this case. He's looking at this evidence and he right away he's weighing in with big opinions about what's going on. It turns out he's someone who was called in to give evidence very frequently in criminal cases because he was the head of surgery. At this time. And for that reason, too, I think he has an outsized uh, presence in the, the documentation. Esparragosa had some very cutting-edge ideas about how bodies should be treated. He really believed in um, d- the practice of dissection, which was, at this point in Guatemala, still somewhat controversial. He taught um, anatomy to his students through uh, the dissection of bodies. And he really was trying to shape a new field, uh, what he thought of as a cutting edge field in Guatemala. And the way in which he took all these steps and his personality may well have provoked some pushback um, from people in his own hospital or maybe from the religious community that took issue with some of the choices he made. For example, he thought it was perfectly acceptable to dissect bodies on sacred ground. Uh, That was not a widely held view by others. And and so I wondered if perhaps some of what was going on with these body parts might be related to some of these cutting edge uh, techniques that he was leading the charge with. And and maybe even his abrasive personality was uh, provoking some of the um, challenges that we could see in, in these actions. So, That detour also led me to understand a bit better how uh, corpses were were treated um, and not treated. Uh, I didn't know very much about how people understood miasmas and all all those things that uh, Esparragosa was well-versed in at that time. Another thing that I felt that I needed to understand um, better and that was really, really one of the most challenging aspects of this was just to understand the physical layout of the city. Um, And it's surprisingly hard to to pin this down for this time period because there's no uh, addresses. People don't use street addresses. So I had some maps that were okay, but just giving me the name of the person where this house uh, with this, you know, house shutter was open and the breast appeared wasn't enough for me to locate it in the city. So I went on this deep dive into the city planning for the way the city was laid out after the earthquake, finding which lots were parceled out to which individuals, and then through this kind of labyrinth of documents, found the block where this man, Cayetano Díaz, lived. And then more things started falling into place in terms of understanding how the city was laid out, where wealthy people lived, where leisure spaces existed, where people would transit from one place to another um, between home and work or between the hospital and other spaces. So that was another challenging aspect of the investigation. I'm not sure that that turned up new uh, uh, sort of theories in in the investigation of that. But for me, it was really challenging just to understand the space uh, uh, of the city. But I realized in doing so that each of these pieces of kind of minutia did help me understand a little bit better how the people in Guatemala City might have experienced walking through the city or could have experienced the presence of a corpse, which would have been maybe dumped by the roadside in some uh, situations where there might have been um, suspicious circumstances. So those are two of, of a few of the contexts that I needed to understand better.
1: Wonderful. Um Thinking then about uh, your modern audience as they approach this, of the of those contexts that you just mentioned, the city layout um, and medicine, uh, you also talk about religious symbols and uh, gender and state involvement with violence management. Um, and which of those do you think might be uh, the most challenging for someone in 2022 now, I guess, reading this book and having to learn new ways of thinking or considering, um, whether it's uh, from just having to deal with the lack of addresses to uh, a different sort of mindset that uh, modernity has.
0: I think the most challenging one, I'm, I'll, I will of course reflect my the one that was most challenging for me, was thinking about um, the, the ways of perceiving the corpse. And in particular, one of the, the key realizations for me it relates to Enlightenment medicine, but is a little bit to the side of it. Was when I when I understood that the practice of teaching anatomy through dissection, as I was talking about, had just in that year eighteen hundred begun, and that previously, Esparragosa and um, his uh, colleague Doctor Flores had been using wax models. Uh, these wax models were consciously Patterned on the work of some famous Florentine sculptors uh, in Italy, who made these wax models that were incredibly lifelike um, and could be taken apart to show the different parts of uh, the human body. But the part that's most challenging to human view to present day viewers, I think, is that these human, very human like, uh, wax models were made eroticized, and so they they show, uh, they're, they're often women. Um, they are shown in positions of repose that are, um, sort of openly sensual. Um, some of them are, they're often referred to as anatomical venuses. They have an expression on their face that is somewhere between, um, the ecstasy of orgasm and the, uh, uh, listlessness of near death. Uh, and so that, Conflation—the meeting point of kind of eroticism and death—I think—is a very challenging one for uh, present-day readers. And in looking at the, the surprise for me was, yes, other people in the past also would have found this perhaps revolting, but there were plenty who did not, um, who found this a kind of natural connection uh, between the the erotic and uh, death, and trying to work my way into that mindset was, was really quite difficult. I found it the hardest thing to be, uh, unjudgmental about, (laughs) I found all of my kind of reflexes kicking in, especially because of the gender aspect of it. You know, if, if there had also been male (laughs) wax models, perhaps I would have felt differently, but they just happened to all be women. (laughs) So it was very difficult to not, um, have my own, um, sort of judgments about what this said uh, regarding, um, you know, women and passivity and death and sex. Uh, And I think that will be a challenge for present day readers too.
1: Kind of continuing on that. I I was really intrigued in the book when you brought up Jack the Ripper and his oversized perhaps role in our modern psyche of uh, understanding crimes against women and crimes with body parts as, as that's just kind of what we go to. Uh, Could you talk more about that particular case's impact on uh, modern Western or English-speaking uh, countries' understanding of uh, how we look at crime or uh, murders of women?
0: Yeah, I think it's the case, but I think even more it's the kind of mythologizing of the case. Um, so the case itself, of course, is has has the impact it has, but it it's the it's the constant referencing of it in. Everything from psychology to entertainment—that I think makes it occupy this enormous place. And the other, the, the other side of that, that uh, significance is, I think, uh, Sigmund Freud. You know, the way that Freud has altered forever the way that we um, think about uh, murderous impulses in relation to sexuality. Uh, I I had a very hard time finding any treatment of sexualized crime that did not heavily reference Freud, um, and I think that those those two things together have really intertwined to create pretty rigid categories of meaning around um, the especially the dismemberment of women, um, just as 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 impactful as Freud is the way that the entertainment industry has used the violence, the the violent dismemberment of women as an allure in storytelling. So it's very hard for me to understand whether the initial reaction to Jack the Ripper was anything like what our reaction is now, because we have been habituated by so many years of entertainment and retelling into seeing in those stories a kind of uh, titillation, frankly, that we can respond to with some outrage, but we are also titillated. You know, this is I love murder mysteries, but the minute a murder mystery begins with a woman's naked body covered with blood, I turn it off because I know that story, right? And it's the same one um, that is going to be Uh, mostly used to entrap us in a series of uh, allurements and probably isn't going to be satisfying in the way that I I like mysteries to be satisfying. So I'm interested in how modern readers uh, kind of continue that legacy. Um, I would love to see some really interesting um, challenges to uh, both pieces of it, both the kind of allure and also the... uh, you know the f- Freud centric interpretation of it. There were some wonderful uh, feminist takes in the like eighties that really tried to both move away from Freud and really take on the entertainment industry for doing this. Uh, but it's slow going, you know. Um, so I think that's how we've been shaped by that by that crime. Mm-hmm.
1: You brought up the entertainment industry, and I—I I was wondering, how do you see your book in dialogue with true crime? Um, because it is about, you know, a historical crime or series of crimes that occurred. Uh, so how how would you hope your book speaks to the popularity of true crime in America at the current moment?
0: Yeah, I—I I feel ambivalent about how it um, engages with that genre. On the one hand. I do think of this book technically as a kind of true crime book. That's that's what it is. It's, t- it's talking about uh, crime in the past, an unsolved cold case, if you will, trying to understand what it was, um, what it meant. I do think, of course, many of my questions and methods are are different. But I guess what I would hope to, as you phrase it, hope to communicate to this, uh, this genre and maybe the readers who most read in this genre is that... Um, I want to mostly pose questions about our fascination with this type of crime. Uh, I I wonder how many uh, true crime readers are aware of the kind of fetishization that goes on in the uh, creation of some of these archetypal stories. Um, I guess my hope would be that the readers of True crime would be prompted to think historically about some of the crimes they they read. I think I also think crimes are fascinating, and yet I think I find them most fascinating for what they reflect about the culture around them, the society and culture around them, rather than in order to look at the the tragedy of an individual life. Uh, so. So that, I guess, is something I would wish to push to the foreground. Um, but I was intentionally, you know, I, I, I can't pretend that I I was unaware of the popularity of of true crime. And I'm not sure that to my own satisfaction, I have kind of wrestled with that contradiction. You know, here I am using some of the conventions, and yet I, f- I find some of them problematic. You know, it's it's a it's a uncomfortable space, perhaps it's, there's only so much you can do by kind of raising challenges and reframing. Um, But yeah.
1: (laughs) Great. So uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the challenges, right. Of being uh, modern individuals looking at the past, Uh, but what are some areas of perhaps overlap or um, mirroring perhaps you could say between uh, colonial Guatemala and today, either in uh, modern Guatemala or in uh, just the average English-speaking reader who might come across your book.
0: Yeah, I think, I think some of the the overlaps that I noticed had to do with um, the priorities of people's everyday existence. Uh, I certainly felt my, my parents um, live in uh, Antigua, which is a, a, a the former capital in, Gua- in Guatemala, and I. Have spent a lot of time in that city and in Guatemala City, which has changed a great deal by now. But many of the kind of daily routines that people describe in the 18th century felt so familiar uh, from just spending time in Antigua. The the way you walk around to do your errands, the way that people greet one another through open windows, uh, the ways that um, spaces are used, that gossip is transmitted from one person to another, all those things felt very familiar. The other aspect of it, though, that even people who haven't gone to Guatemala, I think, will recognize, though, are some of the more um, basic uh, and yet vital impulses, the The ways that people grieve uh, the loss of a child or the loss of a mother, um, the way in which people try to combat illness because it upends their life. Um, These aspects are things that are, I think the closest we can get to historical universals. uh, And that I'm cautious to say that I don't think they're experienced in the same way. I do think that even something as fundamental as parenting can be experienced in different ways, depending on what culture you live in and when, but you can still kind of see a, connection um, across a, a large gulf of time even if you can't experience it in exactly the way someone else did um, and you know I, I have uh, one case in the book that that I mentioned toward the end where a, a woman had lost a um, a child before dying herself of illness and I definitely felt in the documentation this sense of proximity um you know, i don't know what it was like to be her i don't i don't know what it was like at all but i recognized the grief that she was experiencing and i recognized the um the sense of being overwhelmed by her circumstances so i think there are these kind of moments of uh connection even if it is not full comprehension
1: thank you uh Kind of on that point, um, something that I really enjoyed about your book was just its tone and how accessible it felt uh, to readers and really drew us into the story. What made you decide to write with this more uh, popular audience in mind rather than uh, kind of a strict academic work?
0: So uh, I had mentioned (laughs) um, that I started out in complit and uh, I... I've continued since then my connection with the world of literature through fiction writing. Um, And even though I sometimes find the world of fiction writing very strange, I, I, I don't always understand the stories that move people. I, I feel a bit like the, the stories I find most compelling are more marginal stories. I do also continue to um, really get the way that storytelling pulls you in. Uh, and I think that that's true for most readers, uh, not just people who, you know, read the in the true crime genre. So I wanted to see if I could bring the two together in a way, the not, the, not fictionalizing, but storytelling and the more academic work. Um, I, have, I have often in, in doing Central American history felt myself to be something like an evangelist, like I'm trying to win people over to <laughs> Central American history or even just persuade people to think about it that you know, it's part of the bigger picture. That it should be part of the larger uh, store of knowledge that people have in their minds. So I was like, how can I get the greatest number of people on board with a book about an obscure, what to them is an obscure place? So I was really writing with that goal in mind. You know, the idea that this book could be given to anyone who has a, who can read in English and is Somewhat interested in history, um, and so I, I, I had that as my kind of objective to try to uh, foreground storytelling in order to pull in as many people as as possible to what they might otherwise find uh, too obscure a topic.
1: Okay. Well, I would say you succeeded admirably yeah. <laughs> as someone who, well, I'm biased, perhaps, as someone who can read in English and very much enjoys history. But uh, I quite, I quite enjoyed the book. Um, I'm interested too, you you describe it not as a true microhistory, but inspired by the genre. So how do you see, uh, yeah, how, how would you classify your book or tell us more about uh, your understanding of what it's trying to do with genre?
0: Yeah, you know, I've really, I feel like someone else would probably be able to tell better than me. I was definitely inspired by microhistories. That's why I, I have said that it's, it's, I have, i Kind of grew up with them in graduate school. I admire them greatly. Uh, some of them are the classics like uh, Natalie Zaman Davis's book and um, Carlo Ginsberg's book, but also maybe some that aren't quite well known. I think of um, Lucrezia's Dreams uh, by Richard Kagan as an example of uh, microhistory. And what I admire about these books is that they do in many cases tell compelling stories, but it's also that they seek to understand a world through a set of individual lives. That's what I really admire about them. Uh, and uh, I was, I think I was not able to do that as I would have liked because I didn't have really great characters. Um, the only character I really have here is Esparragosa, who is, um, a difficult character (laughs) And he's not the one that I wanted to foreground. Um, And so I couldn't do something in the style of Martin Gare, where I was really plumbing the depths of someone's personal motivations and their their life choices and so on. So instead, I felt that I had to use some of the techniques of uh, microhistory, which was to think about specifics and what they reflect about a broader world or maybe the other way around is just to bring big context into small circumstances, but I couldn't do much of the um, kind of uh, person building that microhistories do so beautifully. Uh, instead I had to use the, the story as that. So that's why I think it's like a, something of a, of a hybrid. And I'm not really sure how to classify it because the other aspect of it, which you will have noticed is that I insert myself uh, maybe obnoxiously as a kind of character in the story. I was here inspired by um, a podcast, actually, um, the podcast Serial, and how she in her reporting inserted herself as an investigator, a character in the story, and made you, the, the listener, want to follow her through this investigation. So I thought of that as a way of uh, pulling in more of those readers that I was talking about earlier, you know, trying to bring along with me readers who may not be as comfortable with Central American history, but that if I could kind of uh, bring them along with me as um, people witnessing my process through this documentation, they might find it more uh, approachable. So I don't I, it's also not a it's certainly not a memoir, but it has me there in the pages talking through some of the things that are happening and and exposing the historical process, talking about, challenges, what works, what doesn't work. Um, so I guess it's also trying to be a book about uh, method to, to some degree.
1: Yeah, I know when I was reading it, uh, you start off and I was fully expecting this book to be uh, entirely about the mystery of these women's body parts. Uh, but as I read on, the, the more I kind of came to wonder what your other motives were, um, particularly about archives, you, you open each chapter with a quote from uh, Arlette Farge's The Allure of the Archive. So kind of how did that play into your um, this interest in archives, uh, play into your uh, structure of the book or your uh, hopes for the book as it goes out? Yes,
0: I, I love that book by Arlette Farge, um, The Allure of the Archive. I can't recommend it highly enough. She really... Um, reveals for the reader it's also very accessible you know for non-historians but it's it's a way of thinking about what we do as historians and what we do in the archive the the tension of being pulled in by the lives of people from the past but also knowing that you can't fully immerse yourself in them you can't fully get there you can just observe from the outside Um, part of what i wanted to do was to show the reader my work you know show the process and and the reason I wanted to do that is because, um, well, there are a few different reasons. One is that I I love magic tricks, just like everyone else. You know, you love seeing the everyone loves seeing the kind of slate of hand and the the incredible surprise at the end. But sometimes when I read that in history books, I feel a little bit um, frustrated that I can't see what the historian has done, all the things that didn't work out all the processes that resulted in dead ends. Um, I, I wanted, part of what I think makes a book approachable is showing, being transparent, showing how you got to where you are. And so I wanted to lead the reader in a way that was, was not um, concealing the difficult aspects of historical work. In fact, I was hoping that if the reader saw how things sometimes didn't work and how there were dead ends, they would appreciate more the work that historians do when things turn out beautifully and they get amazing answers. Uh, I guess I was aiming, maybe, maybe this is like a totally hopeless, but I was aiming also to, to sort of um, give the reader a sense of like the, the historians doing amazing stuff. And if you hide your tricks, it can, seem less amazing. <laughs> if, you, if you show how hard it is, maybe then there will be a sense of, wow, you know, a historian has to do a lot of work in order to just get that one address for Cayetano Diaz. <laughs> so I was also trying to kind of uh, lay the groundwork there for some greater awareness of what the historian is doing.
1: Wonderful. Um, speaking of difficult endings, as you conclude your book, you talk about a couple of the women who were intimately involved with this case uh, in different ways, um, all of whom were low status and they, they only appeared in particular moments. Um, could you talk more, maybe using one of those women as an example of those challenges that historians face, just trying to come up with that one bit of information?
0: Yeah, yeah, this this was the woman I was referring to earlier, who you know had lost a child and then and then died herself. Um, she had another surviving child who was an older girl, and it was very poignant for me to read about them. I think that for people who work on this time period, may, maybe every time period, um, there's often not documentation about the people we most want to know about, um, and I felt that it was very important. I learned this in speaking with colleagues, um, that it was important to acknowledge that lack of documentation, that instead of just being frustrated about it, recognizing that there is not more information about these women, who to me are the center of the story, is part of our legacy. It's part of how Guatemalan history works I think his, how history works in many um, many places and times and and perhaps even in the present uh, that that people who are considered marginal have less space and less said about them in um, the material and I, I, I really feel like I'm not I'm not sure if the the book is able to do this but I really wanted to show that that um, absence, to gesture to, toward that absence, and to make it a part of the record, if you will. You know, the the ways in which we are not able to learn about certain things um, is a fact of what we do as historians. And, you know, ultimately, I hope this would, It's a, it may seem like a reach, but we There's no shortage of books. There's going to keep being books about um, American statesmen uh, and people who wrote about themselves quite a lot. And I would like to gesture toward the unevenness of that in in some ways by noting the absences uh, of the record. Mm.
1: Well, Sylvia, you've been so generous with your time uh, talking with us today. So as a final question for you, uh, how has your work on The Woman on the Windowsill led you in new directions uh, for future research? And what's on the horizon for you these days?
0: Thank you so much for for all these questions. I've uh, I've been uh, absurdly delighted to be able to talk about this, this book in more depth. So thank you for indulging me. Um, you know, I am going back to that project that I had neglected. When <laughs> I took the detour with this crazy case. Um, I, you know, so it's been a very long time going back to really, well, I, I'm embarrassed, but I'll say it. 2012 is when I started looking at these criminal cases. So it's been a decade. And it was a very productive detour, at least. Uh, <laughs> okay, thank you. But still a detour nonetheless. And I it it actually I'm glad that I took this because it has taken me this long to kind of reframe the criminal cases I was looking at. I was originally looking at these as a set of crimes um, around social violence, and it's taken me the entire decade to understand that this is really a project about policing um, and about how policing, as you know, is hinted at in the later part of this book is trying to structure society in a particular way. Um, So my current work is looking at several categories of uh, behavior in late colonial society to understand how social order was created through policing and through other activities. Um, The policing of non-work, for example, in order to enhance productivity, Um, the policing of, people who were at the margins of society and uh, who were, in our terms, non-white, but in the terms of Guatemala, not Español. Um, And also, it's really helped me understand the thing I began with when I was reading those criminal cases. I was trying to understand why violence against women was so ignored. Just misogyny was not enough of an answer for me. And I finally come to understand that those types of crimes were actually a form of order rather than disorder. And that helps explain why they were intentionally not uh, prosecuted. So several types of crimes uh, and their treatment helped me think about policing and social order uh, more coherently uh, in the late 18th century. So that's, that's what I'm working on. And, and it's, a, it's, not, it's not looking at a few individuals anymore but it's still very mysterious. So at least that part of it remains another mystery to be solved.
1: Very good. Well, Sylvia, that sounds like a great project. I look forward to encountering it in whatever form it ends up taking. Um, But again, I just wanted to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you and reading your book. Um, And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to hear Sylvia Sellers-Garcia talk about her book, The Woman on the Windowsill, here at New Books in Early Modern History.